Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the director of the International Disciple Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. The world needs the gospel, and we're doing all we can to bring it to them. To learn more about our work and where you can contribute to the mission, go to traincpe.org, traincpe.org, or breadoflifeboise.org. And now to God's Word. If you have a Bible handy, turn to Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51. There, our Lord Jesus describes for us the final days of the Great Tribulation. His description is further enlightened by a passage in Revelation 18, and the description there of the final collapse of the world economy at the end of the Great Tribulation. What we see in both passages is a world intent on keeping up the normal rhythms of life as if everything will work out in the end. It is a world committed to codependently propping up everything around it in order to feel normal when actually everything is falling apart. So you have this, what we call this, contributing dysfunction. You have individuals who are just happy to buy the wealth that these men are bringing to them, and they're gaining wealth of it. And as long as everybody is getting their satisfaction and getting things to adorn their lives with, in the middle of all of the darkness of the tribulation, in the middle of the torment and the, and the wretchedness that we read about in Revelation 8 and 9, all of it's covered over by this ongoing produce that's being delivered and this consumption of these things. And if we can just keep consuming these things, we'll be satisfied and all will be well. And such is going on in this period of great denial of the realities around them. Look at verses 21 and 24. Chapter 18 there. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists and musicians and flutists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. And all who were slain on the earth. Now, I believe what's being described here is something that has gone on and is going on throughout the ages. But it's intensifying. It's not diminishing. It's intensifying up until the very end. These patterns don't come to an end. And even in the midst of judgment... People pay down double on them and triple on them. It's their way of numbing themselves from the reality that's before them. Note, they're making music at the very end. They're making their art at the very end. They're baking their bread, baking their bread for the next day at the very end. They're giving and taking in marriage at the very end. Let's not address the problems around us. Let's numb ourselves by keeping everything going as it is. It's as if they're sailing on a doomed ship past one iceberg after another, and no one is manning the lifeboats at the end. In Luke 21, 36, Jesus gives this word of advice. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. But it's just here that the Lord Jesus is letting us know that very few will seek an escape from what is looming before them. Why? Well, in part, it's the uncertainty of the hour of Christ's coming. 
It doesn't move them to prepare. Instead, it moves them to postpone. We don't know when he's going to come. We don't know when he's going to show up. It'll be tomorrow. It'll be the day after that. And so instead of seeing what's taking place and being stirred to prepare for that coming, they postpone it and they delay. They pursue their own lives. They pursue their own satisfaction. An example of this, we could give you many examples of this, but let me share you an example that was relayed to me many years ago. Many of you know that our ministry supports Ernest Dung and his ministry in Cambodia. And God has used Ernest in tremendous ways, is still using him in tremendous ways to impact the government of Cambodia and to be an advocate for the Christian faith in Cambodia. When I first met Ernest, we were sharing a hotel room together. And I was speaking at a conference. The hotel was filled up. In the middle of the night, he was the last person to arrive. They came and said, we've run out of rooms. Would you be willing to have this gentleman come stay in your room? And All right, so Ernest came and shared the room with me, and we began talking with one another, and I began to ask him a number of questions, and he began to share with me the story of his life. He grew up in a very wealthy family. His father was the chief general to the king of Cambodia, King Sionic of Cambodia. He lived in a house in which there was a helicopter pad on their home, and his father would commute by helicopter to where he worked. He was about ready to graduate from high school. His father came and showed him different cars that he could buy and promised that he could get a Jaguar if he wanted a Jaguar for his high school graduation. I mean, young man was spoiled. He, he lived in a home where the servants would wait upon each child and would sit at the floor of each child. There were eight brothers and sisters when they ate their food to tend to all their needs. Anyhow, well, the time came in which the Khmer Rouge, the red army of the Khmer people, the Cambodian people, were coming in upon the city of Phnom Penh, and they were throwing down and casting down what was a flagging government of the Lenol regime. And little by little, they were wiping out the villages around them as they were making greater and greater encroachment upon the city, and there were bombings that were going on all through that area, and as they were coming closer and closer, the population was flooding into Phnom Penh, the city of Phnom Penh. So the city, which is, which is a city of not a million people, had about two million people in it by the end as all these people were crowding into the city, and they knew that Phnom Penh was going to fall at that time. And Ernest's father had told his mother to do everything she could to get the family out of the country. And so they had gone and purchased tickets to fly to Paris, France, to escape. And they'd arranged to have all the children have their passports. And then at the last moment, the mother decided to go back and renew her tickets for one week later than what she had originally purchased them for, because she wanted to celebrate a birthday party with her mother before they left. And in that one week, the Khmer Rouge took over Phnom Penh, and they evacuated the city. And as they were marching out, among other things, they recognized Ernest's uncle, who was the minister of agriculture of the Nol regime, and they executed him on the streets before their family's eyes. And they marched them out throughout the city, and Ernest saw the destruction and the people who had died all around them, and Ernest was forced into the killing fields, And he did it before they all departed from one another. As they got out of the city, the mother gathered them all together and they were all weeping and the mother made a little fire and they burned their passports and their plane tickets in the fire before they submerged themselves into that great catastrophe and went through it. And when Ernest was able to go back and visit his family members periodically during the killing fields, he was able to make his way back. He simply went back to dig graves and bury each and every one of them as they died. Could have escaped, could have seen the warnings, could have run, could have fled. But just one more week of normalcy, one more week of postponing so that we might just 
anesthetize ourselves from the realities we're facing by a little bit of laughter, a little bit of joy. And what do we do in situations like this? What's supposed to take place? If you could look on and know what was going to happen in the week coming and you could see it, you would have been crying out to them, run, run, run. To flee from the city like Lot fled from his city. You get into the ark like Noah went into the ark with his family. You're to flee to the Lord Jesus and not look back. You're to put your life in him like a ship that will carry you over the seas of destruction and desolation. You're to see one who's provided himself as an answer for all your needs in the way of escape from the wrath of God against sin. And these events at the end of the age are not a strange anomaly, by the way. They are instead life as it has almost been all along. Isaac Watts wrote this line in the late 1600s. Dangers stand thick through all the around to push us to the tomb, and fierce diseases wait around to hurry mortals home. Infinite joy or endless woe attends on every breath, and yet how unconcerned we go upon the brink of death. Considering these last three points, We have to marvel that salvation found us through Jesus Christ at all. We have to marvel at the great saving work of God and the first thing that he had to do was break down our stubborn resistance to him and overcome our propensity towards just going on and burying our heads and not hearing and not listening and not answering him because we want our own way and somehow God by his grace reached us and we can sing, "'Twas grace that taught our hearts to fear." It was grace that taught our hearts to fear. And grace our fears relieved. In all this, God has a word for us. God has an application. Christ has an application for us. And I want to repeat something that we learned last week in our last sermon. Jesus deploys the pronouns you when addressing his disciples on this topic. In Matthew 24, he's speaking to Peter, James, and John, and he's speaking of all these things that come upon the world at the end of the age, and yet when he speaks about it, he's willing to cast them into that hour, into that moment, because he says, you, you, you. In verse 42, he tells them an application which is to be watchful, to be alert. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour when your Lord is coming. And then in verses 44, he tells him another application, which is to be ready or to be prepared. He says in verse 44, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect it. And then in verses 45 through 47, he gives him another application, which is that they're to be faithful to him, constantly true to him. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in their due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find doing so. Assuredly, I say to you, they don't make him ruler over all his goods. God was speaking to, Christ was speaking to Peter, James, and John, and as he spoke to them, he was willing to take these three individuals and cast their minds imaginatively into that very moment and that very age. And, and the Lord Jesus knew that they were going to be experiencing great destruction, and they were going to be in the midst of spasms of these kinds of events throughout their lives. And it was okay, it was right for them to think that they lived in that moment in which the end of the age had come. And this is the kind of response he's asking from them. At the same time, the Lord Jesus says you because he's looking past Peter, James, and John because he cares for us and he cares for people down through the history of the ages and he's speaking to those who will be at the very end of the tribulation and 
they'll have access to this book and they'll read it and they'll read these words and they'll read the you there and they'll know it's them that Christ was speaking to and they'll know it's a word for them in the middle of all the catastrophe and all the dangers that are around them they're being warned to be alert so that they're not deceived they're being warned to be attentive to the hand of God and the judgment that's taking place. They're being told to prepare themselves because at any moment Christ was going to return to make sure that they were in the boat with Him, that they were relying on Him, that they were living under His blood, that they were accepting and professing the gospel as their only hope. And they're being called upon to be faithful and constantly true in their service of Him and in their walk of holiness, even as the hour becomes more and more destructive and even as the world is dwindling and moving faster and faster into judgment they're to know that Christ the judge is at the door and and Christ is speaking to us as well we have the same injunction laid upon us we're to live being alert we're to be prepared we're to be faithful the gospel says that Jesus Christ has come and died in the place for our sins that he's borne our judgment that he's risen to be our salvation that we are safe from wrath if we come by faith to rest in Him alone. The gospel delivers us from the captivity of sin. It delivers us to live for God and live in the freedom that God gives us, serving Him and obeying Him and following Him. And my life is now to be set in my security in Him alone. And is there ever a time when I can live without my eyes on Jesus? When I can withdraw my hope of salvation from Him and place it in anything else? This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.